Uh, thanks very much, Claire, and many thanks to you all for inviting me to come and speak with you and talk with you again. Um, I had a really warm welcome when I came last time and learned a lot from the discussions I had with many of you before and after the service. Um, and it's a real honor to be asked back. Um, for those I haven't met, my name's Simon. I am, well, last time I came here, I was living in Oxford, but I'm now uh, working as a chaplain at Aston University in Birmingham, and I'm a Baptist minister in training, which I've only just started doing, so I still find it quite odd when I say it. Um, but, uh, but there we go. And um, Claire asked me to speak today about how our theology affects our approach to the world, um, and I'm going to do that by looking particularly at issues to do with peace and war and violence. And that's partly because those issues are so important in themselves, but also I think it provides a, um, a, a way into that discussion about how our theology affects our approach to the world. Because often issues to do with peace are actually issues to do with um, with our values, with what we believe, with where our trust and our loyalty uh, lies. So take it as a topic in itself, but also as a um, uh, as almost a case study, perhaps for for something else. I, I've listened to the the talks um, that that Claire and Ralph gave in the the last few weeks, and it sounds like you've been doing a lot of stuff thinking about how your theology affects. Um, you know, affects our, our, your life, your day-to-day -day life. Um, so that I'm continuing with that now. And um, I'd like to begin with um, what might not be the most obvious reading, but it is one of the references to peace in the New Testament that's not often mentioned when discussions of peace come up. So a short reading from the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, possibly the first letter that Paul wrote, so possibly the oldest letter in the New Testament. Um, uh, Paul was writing about 15 or 20 years after Jesus' lifetime. Um, and in chapter 3 from verse 2, um, sorry, excuse me, chapter 5 from verse 2, I'll just turn over the page to the correct place. Um, Paul says, For you yourselves know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there'll be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So just that, that reference to peace again. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. What does that mean? Well, one of the problems is that the word peace is a word used so much to mean so many things. Uh, on the train up last night, on the last bit of the journey after I changed, train, changed trains at Leeds, the trade to Hull quite late in the evening was full of people going for a, night, uh, for a night out and clearly looking forward to it. And some of them had clearly already started their night out. Um, and um, 
it wasn't the most peaceful atmosphere to read over my sermon notes, um, ironically. Um, but, um, you know, sometimes people say peace and they mean peace and quiet. Um, but when it comes to peace in the broader sense, one of the problems is that everybody says they believe in it. The chairman of BAE Systems, one of the world's biggest arms companies that arms people around the world, including some very oppressive regimes, the chairman of BAE says that he sells weapons for the sake of peace. Almost everybody says that they believe in peace, even if we might disagree about what that means or how we achieve it or, or uh, those sort of issues. And it's quite difficult to say, go and promote something that everybody believes in, because it's almost like the statement becomes meaningless when the opposite is something that nobody would say. Um, so I want to suggest that there's, there's really two contrasting ways in which the word peace tends to get used when it comes to the way we live in society. And we could find these two approaches in the New Testament as well. So a few years ago, um, I was protesting at the, the DSEI Arms Fair in London, uh, an event where representatives of the world's governments, including uh, regimes that are oppressing their own people and countries in conflict, in, in, in armed conflict, uh, are invited to survey the wares of arms companies. And some of us um, sometimes uh, engage in nonviolent direct action, such as by uh, blocking, the, um, blocking the roads and so on. And I, a few years ago, I had a very confusing conversation with a police officer, which was unfortunately, in my view, captured on, captured on film, because <laughs> it's, it's quite an awkward conversation, um, in which he threatened to arrest me for breach of the peace. And I pointed out that I thought the arms fair was breaching peace by making war more likely and that we were trying to stop the breach of the peace. Um, I think it's fair to say the police officer had a very different understanding of what peace was to me. In the context of the phrase breach of the peace, the word peace clearly means, it doesn't really mean peace, it means order. It means keeping things ordered and stable and as they're supposed to be. It's not breach of the peace, it's breach of the order, breach of the system. And in that sense, peace means control, order, calmness, some things which in some contexts might actually be quite good, but essentially about everything being calm and ordered and stable. And of course, in the arms fair, they were calmly, in an ordered and stable way, doing deals with regimes of Saudi Arabia. Um, Martin Luther King, uh, spoke of this idea of what he called negative peace. And I think he would have identified the, the police officer's approach to breach of the peace as an example of this. What he, he contrasted a negative peace, which is the absence of conflict, with a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. That's Martin Luther King's words, not, not mine. Um, so you can, you can credit him uh, for that, that very well summarized thing. And we find this in the New Testament as well, because one thing we have to remember is the New Testament was written in, in the Roman Empire. Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead in the Roman Empire. Paul wrote his letters in the Roman Empire. The earliest Christians, nearly all of them, um, were in the Roman Empire. It was a powerful, violent, international system 
that crack down harshly on political and religious dissent. And if we don't notice the Roman Empire in the New Testament, it's partly because the writers of the New Testament, it was so natural to them that everything referred to the Roman Empire, that the Roman Empire dominated things. They didn't have to say they were talking about the Roman Empire all the time. The original readers and listeners knew that. And we get a great example of that in First Thessalonians in the passage we've just looked at. The Roman Empire claimed to bring peace and security to, what, to, to the countries they ruled. And that was the sort of peace by which they meant order and stability and control. Uh, a leader, um, when, after the Romans had, had conquered part of Britain, um, a, a Celtic uh, leader in Britain, speaking of the Roman Empire, said they make a desolation and call it peace. Uh, that you know, once they've got control over everything, yes, there's peace because nobody's fighting back because all the resistance has been completely squashed. Um, that is the sort of peace the Roman Empire brought, and they had this slogan, "Peace and security." Everybody who read First Thessalonians when it was first written knew that peace and security was what the Roman Empire claimed to bring. And so, when Paul says, "When they say there is peace and security," who's the they? The they is the authorities, they is the Roman Empire, they are the people who trust in that sort of peace. And when they say there is peace and security, destruction will come upon them. That system won't last. Um, it's peace and order as control. And in John's Gospel, of course, when Jesus says he leaves the disciples with peace, uh, he says, my peace I give you, I do not give as the world gives. It was a different sort of peace that Jesus brought different to what the world brought. And I know a couple of weeks ago, Ralph was talking, about the, talking to you about the, the use of the word world and what, what it means, because some of the uh, New Testament, particularly John's Gospel, could sound very negative about the world, as if we have to separate ourselves off from the world and go off into, um, uh, you know, go off in a sort of sectarian way or... You know, it doesn't mean we've got to rush off and live in a field and knit our own yogurt. It means, you know, we haven't got to live apart from people around us. World in the Greek in the New Testament is a translation of the word, the Greek word cosmos, which means, as well as meaning world, it means something like system, the prevailing way of doing things, the order, the setup, the, um, the way we do stuff. So we could translate it as, I don't give, as the, I don't give peace as the system gives, as you, know, as you usually have it. Um, the peace is not of this world. So we've got two ideas of peace. Peace as order and control, and peace as some sort of genuine alternative to that. Peace that Jesus illustrates when he talks about loving enemies, when he talks about showing love for all people, when he talks about a different set of values, which we're going to look at in a moment. And actually, that doesn't involve avoiding conflict. Um, Martin Luther King wrote this great um, letter when he was in prison. Uh, he, he saw a letter in a newspaper from um, a group of church leaders criticizing his methods um, and criticizing nonviolent direct action. And he wrote a letter in response. He started writing it around the margins of the newspaper because he didn't have any paper in prison. Uh, and it's called Letter from Birmingham Jail. And some of you may have read it. If you haven't, I really recommend it. It's one of my favorite pieces of writing outside of, um, outside of the Bible. 
Birmingham, Alabama, I hasten to explain, not Birmingham, England, but um, not real Birmingham. Uh, but the, um, uh, and it is a brilliant analysis, it's quite, it's quite short, uh, of the difference between violence and conflict and some of these issues we're talking about now. Um, if you have, if we have a different set of values, if we reject the violence of the world, if we believe that everybody's life matters and we seek to treat all people with love and respect and even to love our enemies, we cannot avoid conflict because to have those values is to be in conflict with the dominant values of the world. If we say we will love people, whatever their nationality, if we say we don't think refugees are a problem, we think they are people to be, uh, to be loved, however we address that in terms of policy, if we say I won't hate people who are different to me, then we're already in conflict with those sort of systems and ideas and people who, who promote something different to that. Um, so conflict, I think, is different to violence. Conflict is about having different aims, um, mutually exclusive aims, perhaps. But it isn't about violence. It isn't about hatred in and of itself, which is why we can love people with whom we are in conflict. Um, and our faith and sometimes our commitment to peace will therefore involve us being in that sort of conflict. I think this is the sort of, when Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, um, that's, that's a very challenging line. It's something that um, sometimes Christians who wish to justify violence quote that line. I've also heard very anti-Christian people quote that line to show that Christianity is violent. But Jesus then goes on to say, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, etc." He's basically saying that if you follow him, if we, if we believe in the gospel, if we trust in Jesus, rather than trusting in the, the powers and the, the values of the system around us, um, then of course there will be conflict. So the peace he is not bringing is that sort of peace and security the, the, the Roman Empire boasted of, the, the peace of just getting on and pretending there's no problem, the peace of all just conforming. That isn't the peace that Jesus brings. He brings a, a different sort of peace, which involves trusting in something very different. Excuse me, I'm just gonna have a drink of water. And that means starting from a different place. Often when it comes to ethical <laughs> questions we face as Christians, I think one of the problems is that we ask the wrong questions. The um, you know, if you look at, uh, if you watch the news, if you watch a political discussion program and you hear an interviewer ask a question, quite often it has a premise in it that, that assumes certain things. So if you're discussing war, for example, um, on the telly in a political discussion program, or if you're discussing politics in the pub or whatever it might be, um, quite often people will say, oh, well, when it comes to Israel, Gaza, when it comes to Ukraine, uh, what do you think we should do? And when they say we, they mean the British government. Now, I find that really odd because in other, in other contexts, we don't say we to mean the British government at all. Um, but when it comes to issues of war, we have this sort of national identification. It's about whose side we're on. Uh, my friend Chris, um, when he was a small child, was told that his granddad had fought in the war. And he, being a small child, asked if his granddad had been a goodie or a baddie. Um, because, you know, as small children, that's how, we're, 
that's how we're taught to think of war. Now, of course, we may. Um, I, I'm not saying that we should view all sides of your wars the same. I'm, I'm glad, for example, that Nazi Germany didn't win World War II. Um, but the situation in all wars is more complicated than just goodies and baddies. You know, was an 18-year-old German conscript a baddie, for example? Um, and we get asked um, whose side we are on. You know, it's a, it's a child's question, but it's a common question as well. Whose side are you on? So I want to tell you about an important moment in my own faith journey when I realized whose side I wanted to be on. It was nearly 12 years ago now when I was standing in a village in the West Bank in Palestine. I was there as a journalist. I was a reporter on a weekly Christian magazine. I was there with some other Christian journalists. And I was standing next to a pile of rubble, standing next to a man who was staring into space. He was just standing, staring into space. Nearby, his wife and his, his two small children were crying. But he didn't go to comfort them. He just stood there staring into space. Not because he didn't care about them, but because he was in a state of severe shock. It was the first time I'd seen anyone in really severe shock. He, he just couldn't communicate. He wasn't taking in anything. His house had just been bulldozed down. Because, in theory, because he didn't have a permit for building it. Now, in that area, the Israeli authorities almost never issued permits for building houses, which meant that the local Palestinian people had to build them without permits. And then, as often happened, the authorities turned up and gave the family half an hour to remove their possessions from the house um, before they bulldozed it. Even with the limited number of possessions that people in the state of relative poverty in that village had, it's almost impossible to get all your possessions out of a house, including the furniture and so on, in half an hour. So the furniture you don't get out is crushed by the bulldozers as well. And I stood next to those people, and with me were the other inhabitants of the village who were trying to comfort them. With me was a Jewish-Israeli peace activist who had driven us there to, sh to show us what was going on as he tried to build links with his Palestinian neighbors. And I looked at those two children crying, and I thought, no argument, no political theory, no philosophical idea, no twisted theological justification could possibly, no possible interpretation of this conflict and this history can possibly make these two small children responsible for what has happened to them. Those two children, whatever view you take on all those complicated issues, those two children are not to blame. And I decided then whose side I wanted to be on, which wasn't Israel's side or Palestine's side or a side of a nation or a religion. I wanted to be on the side of children who had nowhere to sleep that night. Which is why when Hamas attacked Israel on the 7th of October, I wanted to be on the side of the Israeli children who were killed. And when the Israeli forces have attacked Palestine, attacked Gaza, I want to be on the side of the thousands of Palestinian children who have been killed. And of course, in some conflicts, I'll prefer one side to another. In some conflicts, it is clearly one side who is largely being the aggressor. But essentially, I think that if we are to follow the principle of love for all people that Jesus demonstrated, 
that means being on the side not of a nationality, not of an army, not of a government, at least not primarily, even if that may happen indirectly, but being on the side of the victims and therefore asking different questions, different sorts of questions to begin with. And I think Jesus demonstrated these different sorts of questions in one of his most famous passages, which I'm sure you'll be much more used to hearing in discussions of peace. Um, when in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Those phrases are so well known, they've almost become cliches, but I suggest they're um, uh, actually about siding with victims and about resisting the violence around you. Some of you will be very familiar with something I'm about to say. Some of you might not have heard it at all. So, so bear with me if you are familiar with this. Jesus talks about if someone hits you on the right cheek. In the culture of the time, <coughs> to, hit on the right, to hit someone on the right cheek with your right hand, you have to hit them with the back of your hand essentially. Um, backhanding somebody was a way in that culture in which people disciplined their supposed social inferiors. It was a way in which masters hit their slaves. It was a way in which men hit their wives. And it was a way in which Roman soldiers put Jewish civilians into line. It was a way of diminishing somebody to hit their right cheek with the back of your hand. In Rome, if you hit an, if you're a Roman citizen and you hit another Roman citizen um, with the back of your hand, the fine for doing so was several times higher than if you'd punched them, because because the back of the hand was seen as something to use against an inferior. And Jesus addresses these people. He addresses women whose husbands have hit them. He addresses slaves whose masters have hit them. And he says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. And it sounds like passivity, it sounds like, you know, he's telling them to give in. It sounds like he's telling them just to cower and accept it. If you're a slave, if you're a woman in a patriarchal society, the chances, if you're a civilian surrounded by soldiers in a militarized society, the chances of you actually being able to fight back anyway are fairly remote. But Jesus doesn't tell you to cower in the corner. Imagine being a slave who's hit by your master. Yes, you can't fight back. I mean, practically, you wouldn't be able to anyway. You could be killed very quickly if you did. But nor does he say just sort of, you know, a submissive response, a passive response. He isn't turning the other cheek. A submissive response is to lower your face and cower and cringe. And Jesus says to stand there and turn the other cheek. Look them in the eye almost. It's nonviolent defiance. And not everybody could do that. Sometimes you, you would cower, you would cringe, because that's all you could do. Jesus isn't judging people who do that. He's saying in that situation, you can be defiant. You can assert your dignity. A Roman soldier could force a civilian to carry his pack for one mile, but only one mile. In some towns in the Roman Empire, not long before this time, riots had broken out because of Roman soldiers forcing their people to carry their pack for more than a mile. So the Roman authorities enforced the mile limit quite strongly. And Jesus said, he doesn't tell you to refuse to carry the pack. 
He doesn't say, just carry the pack and then walk off feeling demeaned. He says, carry it for another mile. So you go one mile, the Roman soldier asks for his pack back and you just carry on. You've seized some control in that situation. The soldier has to get his pack back from you. The soldier's no longer in control. You've, you've surprised him. Similarly, if you're so poor that the people chasing your debts have got the coat off your back, show them what they've really done by making yourself naked and humiliate them. Now, it's not a strategy for um, social transformation. I think Jesus planned some of his actions more structured way, such as in the, um, the protest in the temple, which uh, is written in a way that implies quite a level of organization, but I won't go into that. It's about day-to-day -day resistance. It's about day-to-day -day defying the unjust powers around you and living with a different calling. The examples about um, the pack, the mile, the cheek, they're all just examples. Uh, there are some more recent examples that strike me. <coughs> John Wesley, the famous Methodist leader, uh, finding himself walking down a narrow path one day um, and encountering somebody who recognized him and knew who he was, and they couldn't both fit past each other on the path. And this man shouted to John Wesley, stand aside, I'd never make way for fools. Well, he could have stood aside. You might feel quite humiliated. He could have just pushed past him, which might be quite unloving. But instead, as the man said, stand aside, I never make way for fools. John Wesley stood to one side and said, I always do. And that perhaps is an example in a very minor way of a sort of loving, nonviolent assertion of dignity, a, a rejection of violence and passivity. Um, my friend Chris Howson, who's a Church of England priest, used to be a priest in Bradford, and he was sometimes quoted in the local media expressing views that some people strongly disagreed with on local political issues. And sometimes he would get angry phone calls from people in Bradford, shouting at him down the phone, accusing him of being, um, being a communist or an anarchist and various other things that he's not. Um, now, he could just slam the phone down, Probably what the people calling expect is that he'll either slam the phone down or he'll shout back at them or he'll get all submissive and defensive and try and justify what he said or say that isn't really what I meant or be all apologetic. What he would actually do was to say, oh, well, I'd like to hear more of your view. Would you like to meet up for a coffee and talk about it? That threw them. They weren't expecting that. They're expecting submission or aggression in return. In all the time Chris did that, only one person took him up on his offer of meeting for a coffee. Most of them put the phone down. So I wasn't even about trying to defeat them. That was about trying to subvert the situation, seize, take the initiative, take the power in a different way. And I suggest this is relevant. You know, whatever our views on peace, whether we're pacifists or whether we believe that violence is sometimes justified, that isn't what I'm going into now. I think this is relevant to how we make decisions, it's relevant to our starting points. That our starting point is not an assumption that one side is, wrong, is right because they're the same nationality as us. It's not an assumption um, that uh, when we say we, we must be talking about the British government. It's not, a, um, it's not even an assumption of just opposing everybody and condemning them all, or only thinking that other Christians are the people who are on our side. 
It's actually about starting from a different starting point, a starting point of the kingdom of God, which was so central to Jesus' teaching, and allowing us in our everyday lives to glimpse something of God's kingdom through how we live. For Jesus' original listeners, that was about saying, I won't cower, I'll turn the other cheek. I won't feel rubbish for being forced to carry that pack a mile because I'll seize the initiative and walk another mile. For somebody like my friend Chris, it was about refusing to apologize for his views or to respond aggressively, but genuinely lovingly offering to meet and discuss with the other person. For some people, it may be about simple acts of everyday life that are nothing dramatic, are nothing particularly clever or, 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 or cleverly worded, but are just about ensuring we treat everybody we meet with dignity. And we will fail. We will fail all the time because we are fallible and sinful human beings. I fail all the time in my ambition of treating everybody with respect and as equals. And only in God's strength can I try that at all. But when we do, when we do love our enemies, when we do treat other people as equals, when we do have a different starting point, we allow other people around us to glimpse, however briefly, something of the kingdom of God. So yes, we can join in big strategies for political change, but we can also live day to day in as much as we're able, in the ways that we're able, demonstrating a different loyalty, a different starting point, <coughs> rebelling, as it were, against the, the idols that insist that violence uh, will solve our problems, that supporting one group over another will solve our problems, rather than trusting in the strength and power and love of God. So I'd like to finish with a quote from a song from the band Jars of Clay. And the song is called Small Rebellions. I recommend it. Give us days that are filled with small rebellions, senseless, brutal acts of kindness from our souls. <laughs>